As we said last week, Obadiah is the shortest book in the Old Testament. It's only 21 verses long. One chapter, 21 verses. But there's a lot here. Obadiah is not a um, super exciting, um, encouraging book. Obadiah, the first two-thirds of it, says um, essentially God is going to destroy a nation. He's going to wipe them from the earth. They will be no more is essentially the first two-thirds of the book. And then after that, uh, we see Judah will be restored. Judah is going to come back, and that's what we're going to look at next week. Today, we're looking at verses 10 to 14. And so we saw last week uh, that that Edom, the nation of Edom, uh, are prideful. And we saw specifically in verse 3, Behold, I will make you, that was verse 2, verse 3, The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock. In your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? They're prideful. They, they put their pride in, in a number of different things in, in the area where they lived, which was easily defensible. They, they put their pride in their allies, their powerful, very strong um, allies that would help defend them. They put their wisdom in their wealth. They were a pretty wealthy nation in, in their wisdom. Um, they, were, they were known for being very wise. They put their their hope, their faith, their trust in the wrong place because they were prideful. Now, what Obadiah is going to do uh, is he's going to shift. and He's saying, yeah, you were prideful, but here's what your pride led you to do. Here's specifically what you're guilty of. And that's what we're going to see in verses 10 to 14. And what we're going to see in this passage is that um, their sin kind of compounds, right? And, and that's true of us as well. We don't just all of a sudden decide one day to, to commit this terrible, horrible sin. It's, it's usually built on one sin after another after another, and they progressively get worse and worse. And next thing you know, we're like King David, who's, who's trying to steal another man's wife and then covering it up by, by murdering him. That's what we're going to see today. We're going to tear it apart. We're first going to do verse 10, then we'll do 11 to 14. Uh, so first, let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much for this morning and for the opportunity to worship you as our God, as our Father. God, we know that, that you love us, that you care for us. God, we know that you provide for us. We know that, that you are the God of heaven and we're not. And you deserve all glory, all honor, and all worship. And Father, that's what we come to do. We come to worship who you are because you're worthy of it. We come to sing your praises because... God, to be honest, we could, we could sing all day, every day for 10,000 years and still not sing enough. God, because you are magnificent. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can study your word and know that, that it will not return void, but that you sanctify us through your word. And so, Father, we, we know that you have revealed yourself through, through your scriptures. And, God, we pray that, that, that you would be front and center this morning, that you would increase and I would decrease, and we would be blown away by how incredible you are this morning. Father, we pray these things in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, what we see is um, we, Obadiah is going to, to demonstrate, to prove to us that the Edomites are guilty of a sin. The sin is, is actually kind of difficult to really name. Um, one theologian called it unbrotherliness, which I don't know how old that guy was, but that word really doesn't have much meaning anymore. Uh, so we're not, we're not going to call it that. But um, it's kind of like a hard-heartedness, or uh, the legal term for it would be a culpable negligence. Okay? 
And what that means is, um, you know, they kind of initially just kind of stood back and watch. They could have helped. They could have intervened. They could have done something to help their brothers, the, the Jews, but they chose not to. And so they stood back and watched the destruction, the defeat of Jerusalem. And that's kind of what's being presented. They could have involved themselves. They could have helped, but they chose not. In fact, they did the opposite. Eventually, they come in and they start attacking as well. Verse 10 we're going to see Obadiah begin. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. You shall be cut off forever. Remember this promise. What Obadiah is telling, what God is saying through his prophet is the people of Edom will be no more. They will be gone. Right? That, that's why you and I have never eaten at, at an Edomite restaurant before. I have no idea what their food tastes like because they've been wiped off the face of the earth. And this begins kind of as a contrast in 14. The, the verses really present um, really culpable negligence or hard-heartedness. And it comes out of Edom's pride. What Obadiah is doing in the first two sections, first he says, you're guilty, you're prideful, and you're guilty. You, you've done some terrible things. Okay? That's one to nine. You're evil and you're prideful. And then in verses 10 to 14, he shows why they're evil and private. He's basically proving his point. He shows why this condemnation is valid and, and why the judgment of God is, is coming for them. So at first glance, these sections kind of seem to be talking about different things. If you read 1 to 9 and then 10 to 14, you might come to the conclusion and say, well, you know, it kind of seems like there's two separate issues going on. No, uh, verses 10 to 14 is proving verses 1 to 9. Your pride, right, your pride has led you to do these things, these specific things that are evil and wicked. You have done them to your brother. According to Obadiah, the pride of Edom deceived the people into trusting, remember, their natural defenses, their, their powerful allies, their, their wisdom in the sight of men. They trusted in all of those things rather than in God. So they had become hard-hearted toward Israel. And all of this grows out of Edom's pride. And what Obadiah is doing in these two sections of his prophecies, he's making this accusation in 1 to 9, they're, they're evil and prideful. And then again, in, in verses 10 to 14, he's proving it. He's saying, here's what you did. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to call you prideful, but here's the evidence of, of your pride. Here are your actions. According to um, the well, in the second section of the book, the emphasis changes, and all of a sudden we find Obadiah dealing with what was a specific event in history. He starts talking about something that happened, an, an event. Okay, so in 1 to 9, he's saying, look, you're prideful. Hey, you're not a good people. You're evil. You're wicked, and, and God is going to judge you, right? And that can apply from the time of Esau, their, their father, their founder, all the way up to the time that Obadiah is writing. He's saying, look, look, you are not good. You're not good to your brother. You're not good to the Israelites. You're not faithful. You're not obedient. You're not kind. But then in verse 10, he starts talking about an event that happened, a moment in history. And he starts giving evidence of their actions. It's difficult to say when Jerusalem was overrun by enemies. The people of Edom, who should have mourned at, at really the, the destruction of their brothers, 
They did the opposite. Rather than mourn, they joined in. They rejoiced at Judah's loss. They jump in on the looting after it's over. The, the accusation is that the, the people of Edom had sinned greatly in their pride. Obadiah is saying a proof of their pride and the proof of the pride in Edom is in the way that they treated Israel when Israel was being attacked, when Jerusalem was being overrun, when it was being defeated. Rather than come in and help, Edom did the opposite. Pride leads to an unjustified sense of superiority, okay? And when we feel this way about ourselves, what happens is we naturally look down on others, and then when, as we're looking down on them, we begin to mistreat them, okay? And, and it doesn't always come out in the sense where, like, I think I'm great, I think I'm wonderful. It's I, I have to think of myself first. And as I'm thinking of myself first and, and, and what's best for me, what's going to happen is that person is not as important. If I think of myself as the most important, what I'm going to do is start to think less of you. And as I start to think less of you, what I'm going to do is I'm going to start mistreating you. My time is more important than your time, so you do this stuff. My, my comfort is more important than your comfort, so you do this stuff. I have this education and you don't, so, so I'm going to start treating you poorly as though you're not an intelligent person. That's pride. That, that's, that's, how it, that, that's how it reveals itself in our lives. So Edom's mistreatment of the people of Jerusalem was proof of their pride. What, what we're seeing is that they're sinning against a brother. That's what's happening here. This is not just one empire attacking another empire and wars are going on. They're related. Remember, the Edomites are the descendants of Esau, the grandson of Abraham. We talked about Abraham all summer long. If you, if you don't remember that, then jump back to the book of Genesis and you can, you can read Genesis 12 to about 25 and you can catch up a little bit. The Edomites were descendants of Esau, the grandson of Abraham. The Jews are the descendants of Jacob, Esau's twin brother, also the grandson of Abraham. So Edom is attacking those who were related to them in a special way because Esau and Jacob were twin brothers. Right? The, the two nations were brother nations, and, and mistreatment of one by the other was particularly kind of heinous because of this relationship. God, in, in Deuteronomy chapter 23, God says this, You shall not abhor an Edomite, for he is your brother. He, he gives this command to the Jews. You will not hate the Edomites. You will not mistreat them. They are your brothers. You, 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 will, you will view them in a special way. This obligation also worked the other way around. The Edomites should have valued the Israelites, the Jews, but they didn't do that. They broke that relationship. The prophecy says, because of your violence done to your brother, Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. Cut off forever. Maybe people don't have a high regard for family anymore. And maybe they, maybe they didn't even way back then, right? Husbands and wives, parents and children, brothers and sisters. Maybe, maybe we don't have a high value in families, and, and relationships within a family. But the Bible everywhere speaks of them. It speaks of them in high regard. It, that, that's how God designed us to live. That's how God designed the family. 
Let me just give you an example. Even in, in, in a trivial matter, 1 Timothy chapter 5 has this to say. Listen to this language, how strong it is. If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That comes out of 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8. That's pretty strong language, isn't it? God has put us in families, and those relationships, those, those familial relationships are sacred. As we, as we said earlier, it's, it's not easy to date the specific offense um, that, that Obadiah is talking about in, in 10 to 14. Though it would be helpful in understanding the book if we could really narrow it down. So, according to the book of Obadiah, <clears throat> on the occasion of an overthrow of Jerusalem by her, her enemies. Okay, so what's happening is you have a foreign army coming in and attacking Jerusalem. All right, Jerusalem falls. It's, it's defeated. They lose. All right, what happens is the Edomites first stand by. They, they watch it happen, and they don't want to be involved. They, they don't want to, they want to get their hands dirty or anything like that. And then after that, after they see Jerusalem fall, after they see the Israelites defeated, then what they do is the Edomites jump in, and they start attacking as well. First thing they do is they raid the city. They raid the city. They start looting. They start doing their things, stealing, whatever it is that they, they need to do. And then what they do and this is particularly evil. As Jerusalem has fallen and, and the invading army is there and, and all the horrors of warfare are going on, you have Israelites escaping the city. They're running away from Jerusalem. And what's happening is the Edomites are coming in and they're capturing these people who are fleeing the city and they're returning them back to either be killed or turned into slaves or whatever it is. Now, we know Jerusalem was invaded four times. <clears throat> and two of those times, we can eliminate. The Edomites were not involved. Okay, and you can read about those. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 2 Corinthians chapter 25, they're listed. You can read about that. Okay, there's still, there are two invasions where the Edomites were involved. Right? Uh, and that happens at the sack of Jerusalem by the Philistines and the Arabs during, the rain, during about 850 B.C. Okay. Uh, but also uh, the overthrow of Jerusalem by the Babylonians in 587 B.C. Okay, and that's the most famous one. That's when the temple is destroyed. That's when uh, the, the Jewish people are taken and exiled to Babylon, and, and all of, of those things happen there. I believe Obadiah was written within a few years of the fall of Jerusalem in 587 B.C. All right, there are a number of reasons why. Ezekiel is one of them. Okay, Ezekiel, as he's writing about the fall uh, to the Babylons, he says this in Ezekiel chapter 35. And say to it, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, Mount Seir, and I will stretch out my hand against you, and I will make you a desolation and a waste. I will lay your cities waste, and you shall become a desolation, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Because you cherished perpetual enmity and gave over the people of Israel to the power of the sword at the time of their calamity, at the time of their final punishment. That sounds an awful lot like Obadiah 14. Look, there, there are godly, brilliant theologians who are much smarter than me who would disagree with me on this, on, on exactly what time Obadiah was written. 
But honestly, we shouldn't get overly dogmatic about the date of Obadiah because whether it was written in 586 or in, or in the mid-830s, the message is the same. The message is that Edom is prideful and Edom jumped in when Israel needed them. They, they jumped in and attacked them when Israel needed them. So what we're going to see is the compounding of sin. Obadiah verses 11 to 14 really demonstrates this. So look at, at verse 11 with me. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother and the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. Scripture records that the growth of Edom's sin, and it actually records it over generations. Okay, we see its origins in, in, in the, the conflict between Jacob and Esau. You can read about that in Genesis 25, 27, and 33, right? But we see it not just on a personal level, we also see it on a national level, right? At the time of Israel's exodus from Egypt, Moses goes to the Edomites and asks them if the, if the Israelites can cross over their land to get to the promised land. And the Edomites say no. In fact, if you even try it, we're going to send our military out and we're going to cut you down. We're going to destroy you. If you even come close to our land, we will attack you. We'll, we'll go to war with you. In Obadiah, we've already seen kind of the progression from pride to the specific sins of kind of indifference. And then all of a sudden, it, it shifts from indifference to this ruthless attack. One theologian said pride was the root of Edom's sin, then envy, then followed exaltation at his, <laughs> at his brother's fall, hard-heartedness and bloodshed. Like I said, there, there are few great sins that happen overnight. Very rarely do we, do we commit these horrible great sins just out of the blue without anything leading up to them. Again, David's sin with Bathsheba was followed by the murder of his husband, of, of her husband. But it wasn't something that happened quickly and, and, and out of the blue for David. David first was staying home in Jerusalem. He should have been out with his army. He shouldn't have even been there. He should have been in the field with his troops. And as David, the, the, David's sin, the murder of Uriah, was led by his sexual sin, wasn't it? Big sins are always built on little sins. What happens is, is we sin here, and we kinda, then we kind of get comfortable with it. And then we take it a little further until we're a little bit more comfortable with that, and we justify it in our minds. And we, we say, well, it's not really a sin. It's not really that big of a deal because of these circumstances in my case. And then we push it a little further, and we push it a little further, and we push it a little further. And next thing you know, we're like David trying to steal someone's wife and murdering her husband. Sin is built on sin. Edom's sin began small, but it grew. The battle between two brothers led to a battle between two families. And the battle between two families led to a battle between two nations. We have this growth of sin in Obadiah. And it's this progression from a general sin of pride, which is wicked, and we talked about that last week. But then it turns into the specific sin of hard-heartedness or, or culpable negligence. 
Well, let's talk about that a little bit. We have it in the, in the growth of this culpable negligence itself. We see it in, in verses 11 to 14. We see it growing, not just over generations, but we see it in one event that happened over a short period of time, relatively. But by 11 to 14, we find kind of this intensification of, of this hard-heartedness. And, rather, and it starts off with them standing aloof and, and watching Jerusalem fall, watching the, the Israelites be attacked. And, and, and it begins with, with the Edomites just unwilling to help. And it ends with them attacking the Israelites. So let's look. First we see the sin they're standing by. They're standing by when our brother is out. The, the text says, On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. You're no better. You did nothing to help. You didn't do anything. The failure of Edom points back to Cain and Abel. They, they were divided by God's acceptance of Abel's offering and, 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 and God's displeasure of Cain's. And so Cain was angry, and he lures his brother into the field, and, and he kills him. And when God comes back, God comes in, and God asks Cain, where's your brother? You can read about this in Genesis 4. Where's your brother? God already knows the answer. God knew what happened. You know what Cain's response is? He's so arrogant. Cain's response is, am I my brother's keeper? He's saying, I don't know. Do I have to keep track of him? Do I have to watch him? Am I his babysitter? How would I know where he is? Why would I care? Am I my brother's keeper? Why are you asking me this, God? But that's what Edom was doing. Edom is watching their brother be attacked and defeated and destroyed. Edom is watching the holy city of God be destroyed, be overrun. Watching the temple be ripped apart. Jerusalem was threatened by enemies. And the people of Edom sat there and they said, what's that to me? This isn't my fight. Am I, am I my brother's keeper? Do I have to involve myself in everything that the Jews involve themselves in? Do I really have to care? This isn't my fight. Why, why should this matter to me? If they fall, it serves them right. They should be more like us. They should be wise like us. They should, they should have a, you know, live in, in, in these cliffs. This isn't my problem. This is their problem. I'm staying out of it. You compare it to Cain and Abel. To be honest, this begs the question. And it, maybe, maybe you've asked yourself this question before. Look, we know that Edom was wrong. We know that Edom was sinful. But that question, am I my brother's keeper? Have you ever asked yourself that? Am I my brother's keeper? Am I to be concerned with my brother or my sister? Am I to be concerned with what's going on in the life of, 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 of another Christian that I know and care about, someone who goes to my church? That's a question that Christians often ask themselves. And let me just answer this for you in, in case you've ever asked yourself this question. Yes, you are. You are your brother's keeper. You absolutely are. You have a responsibility to other men and other women and a special responsibility to those within your family, right? And the family of God, which is the church. You absolutely have a responsibility to them. God holds you accountable. 
Where you can help, you must help. Where you can encourage, you must encourage. Where you can defend, you must defend. Yes, you absolutely are your brother's keeper. Now, I'm not saying that you need to go jump into everyone's business and get in the middle of arguments and all of that stuff, but you are to encourage, to help, to defend, to support your family and your church. Absolutely. The first offense was bad. The Edom just stood back. And they, they said, not us, not our fight. We're, we're going to stay out of this. It serves them right. They, they shouldn't have been mouthing off to Babylon. But then we see it progress. We see a second sin. It's going to happen in verse 12 and verse 13. It's mentioned. Do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. That's verse 13. You see the progression there from the first one, from, from standing aloof to now they're gloating. Right? They're, they're gloating, they're laughing at him. It serves him right. It serves him right. Look at him. They, they, they shouldn't have done that. Instead of just standing aloof, now they're, they're, they're gloating over it. They're glad that it's happening. The people of Edom stood aloof from Judah at the time of her fall, and that's bad in itself. There's this sense where they kind of didn't stand far enough away. So what's going on is, is, is they're, they're, they're watching and they're saying, I'm not going to get involved, I'm not going to help, I'm not going to f- defend. They deserve it. And, and then what the Edomites did is they started looking and paying attention. They started basically getting nosy and, and paying attention to the details of what's happening. And I have to tell you, I have to tell you, so many Christians do this. We're not the Edomites. We're we're not looking at at the fall of a city or any of that business. But so many Christians do this. We see someone fall. We see someone fall to a temptation, to a sin. We see someone in a terrible situation. We refuse to help. We say, yeah, I, I care about them but I don't want to get involved. That might, that might take too much time. I don't, I don't have the time or the energy to, to invest in this person. I, I can't help them. They, they require too much. I just don't have it in me. I, I can't devote that much time. I can't devote that much effort. Dealing with that person is exhausting. I can't do it. We do that all the time, don't we? That's standing aloof, by the way. But then you know what we do? As we're watching someone fall as we're watching someone deal with sin or, or, or their life fall apart, we are unwilling to help, unwilling to support, unwilling to encourage, but we're very much willing to find out the details of their sin. And so what we do is we say, you know, I, I can't help this couple as, as, as you know, their, their, their marriage is falling apart and all sorts of things are happening and they can't get along. I just can't devote the time to help them and to serve them and to encourage them to, to come back together. I, I, I can't do it. It's too much for me. What did he do to her? He's been spending a lot of time with his secretary. Is that what you said? Wow, they, they've had problems for, for years. I didn't know that. And so we stand away unwilling to help, but we get close enough to hear the details and gossip. We do it, we're guilty. And rather than standing far away, we elevate our sin 
by kicking them while they're down. We do it. That's what the Edomites are doing here. The Edomites were unwilling to help in any way. They said they deserve it. This is what they got. But they got close enough to hear the details. They got close enough to know what was going on. They, they, they wanted to hear the, the gory stories of, of Jerusalem falling. And Christians want to hear the juicy details of a marriage falling apart or, or someone falling to the sin of pornography or, or whatever it might be. I'm unwilling to help, but I definitely want to hear what's going on. Then we start gossiping and kicking them while, we're, while they're down and dividing the church and, and attacking. It's evil and it's wicked. It is. So many Christians do this. So many Christians are unwilling to help their brother or their sister when they're struggling, when they're failing, when they're hurting. And then we start kicking them and attacking them when they're vulnerable. That's evil. It is absolutely evil. Don't be too curious about someone else's sins. Don't focus on, on, on knowing what's going on in their life. Look, and I'm not telling you that you can't help. I'm not telling you that you shouldn't, you shouldn't be a servant of the Lord and serve them. I don't mean that if another Christian is, is falling in sin, that the sin itself is to be ignored. But the principle for dealing with sin is, is the, really the first verse of Galatians chapter 6. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watching yourself, lest you too be tempted. So when we see a brother or a sister struggling or failing or their life falling apart, yes, we jump in, yes, we help them, we encourage them, we pray for them, we open up the scriptures and disciple them. We don't ignore the sin that's there, we, but we seek to restore them in gentleness. We say, I care about you. I love you. I want to see you restored. You need to repent. You need to seek forgiveness. Let, let's do this together. I can help. That's why the scripture says, bear one another burdens. That's what it's talking about. Our obligation is to restore if we hear about it. Lovingly call them to, re to repentance. Disciple them. Show them how to seek forgiveness and how to walk to restoration. That, that is our responsibility to one another. The Edomites refused to do that. The Edomites looked and they watched and then they wanted to hear the horrible stories of their brother being destroyed. Christians do the same thing in the church. We do the same thing when we gossip about other people's sins. That's what's going on there. And again, it's evil and it's wicked and it brings God's judgment. But it doesn't stop there. And the growth of their sin, second half of verse 12. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. The progression is easy to understand. Look, whenever there's hostility between two brothers or, or nations or churches or whatever it may be, and, and one sees the other in, in kind of a misfortune or the, one sees the other falling or, or, or failing in a hardship, the natural thing, the natural response is to be happy about it. I don't like that guy. They treat me terribly. It's awful. He, he, re, he really just, just talks bad about me all the time. Oh, now he's falling. He, he sins. His life is falling apart. That makes me happy. Serves him right. 
Makes me laugh at him. That's what's going on here. The Edomites are, are overjoyed with the fall of Jerusalem. You might ask, you know, do Christians really do that today? Absolutely they do. Absolutely we do this. Christians gossip and slander other Christians and can even be happy about, about, the, about the sin of another person. And somehow it makes them appear better, as though the sin of another person makes me look good. It's ridiculous. That behavior is wicked. <clears throat> the next thing we're going to see is boasting. Again, in verse 12. Do not boast in the day of distress. This grows from pride, and it's, it's related to rejoicing in another's failure. We rejoice because we consider ourselves better, right? The, the pride tells us that we're better, more important. And so we rejoice at someone else's failure, at someone else's defeat. We saw ourselves on, on the same, or if we saw ourselves on the same level as others, we would mourn with them and, and, and turn to God in humble thanksgiving that, that we have been spared, even though our sins are, are many. We're, we're guilty just like the next guy. But so often we don't see ourselves on the same level as others. We see ourselves as greater or more important than others. And so we take joy in seeing others fail and fall. At this point, there's kind of a transition. Up to this point, all, all the steps in this growth of sin, they've been attitudes. Attitudes of pride, of course, but they've been attitudes, or, or at least maybe actions kind of, of, of a negative sort, right? The Edomites stood aloof in, in the day of Jerusalem's fall. This led them to look down on their brothers, rejoice in the misfortune, Ultimately, boast that they were stronger, better, wiser, superior to the Israelites. But this can't be just attitudes. When, when we have these attitudes, it always leads into actions, and these actions are sinful. So the fifth thing that we're going to see as their sin is growing, we have these four attitudes that are bad, and the fifth thing that we see comes in verse 13. What does verse 13 say? Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. The Edomites entered into the gates. They started looting and robbing and attacking. The next thing is that they looted their wealth. Again, in verse 15. And the last thing is really a, a, a big description involving three related actions, right? In verse 14. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. As the Israelites were fleeing Jerusalem, as, it, as it's falling and they're under attack, the, the Israelites are fleeing, running, running away from their enemies. What's happening is the Edomites are blocking their path, capturing the people, and returning them to be either killed or enslaved. This is... <clears throat> really the ultimate growth of their sin. It's evil and it's wicked. But it's, it's something, again, that Christians can be guilty of today. And I get that, that our city isn't going to be attacked by our enemies or any of that stuff. It's a different context, but the same thing can happen. See, in, in serving the cause of Satan through their treatment of Christians, of other Christians who have sinned or erred in some doctrine. When we see another Christian sin or fail or hurt or their life fall apart, rather than going to Galatians chapter 6 and trying to restore them gently, what we so often do is just write them off and attack them and ignore them. 
and leave them for our enemy, Satan, to destroy them. Christians are guilty of this. And to be honest, Christians who do this, and and by the way, it's common, Christians who do this are more serving our enemy than our Lord. Our duty to other believers is to build them up and to restore them if they sin. Ephesians 5, for it's shameful even to speak for the things that they do in secret. And then Galatians 6, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. It's very clear. Verse 14, Obadiah has really completed his case against Edom. There's nothing left for Obadiah to do but to to speak of, of that coming day of the Lord that the judgment for Edom is coming. After this, Edom's going to talk about how, how uh, Judah is going to be restored and, 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 and come back, and we're going to talk about that next week. Here's a warning for us. The sin of Edom, it, it lasted so many generations. It worked itself into the character of the people and into their history. But that flow of history And the relationship between the two brother nations brought two kings together. This is really the, there's a king of Edom, an Edomite king, and a king of Judah. And the scriptures record this interaction. It's actually in the New Testament. It comes in Luke chapter 23. We have an Edomite king and a Judean king. The Edomite king was Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas was the son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great is the one that, is, that so famously killed all the, the two-year-old males in, um, in Bethlehem because he was trying to kill Christ. He was trying to kill the Messiah. He slaughtered the babies in Bethlehem in an attempt to exterminate Jesus. His successor, Herod Antipas, who we're talking about here, really was no better than his father. He beheaded the greatest man ever to live, according to Jesus. I suppose you could say the greatest man ever to live besides Jesus, right? But according to Jesus, John the Baptist is the greatest man ever to live, and Herod Antipas had his head cut off. Jesus refers to Antipas as that fox in Luke chapter 13. Antipas was a worldly king. He had everything he wanted. He was extremely wealthy. He had everything that he wanted. He didn't really have to worry about governing too much because the Romans took care of that, and yet he still got to tax people and live a life of luxury. All, his, all the pleasures of this world were Herod's. He could do what he wanted to do, indulge, and, and, and live his life. If anyone stood in his way, as John the Baptist did, then that person would lose their life. The motto of his reign was, what will it profit me? That's the Edomite king we see in Luke chapter 23. Do you know who the other king is? The Judean king? It's the king of kings. It's Jesus. He's the other king, right? He's the one who, according, according to the flesh, was the natural heir of the throne of David. According to his divine nature, he's, he's the supreme king over, over all the earth, over the entire universe. But unlike Herod, Jesus didn't look like a king. Jesus wore modest clothing. In fact, Jesus even said that he had no place to lay his head. He he didn't have a palace like Herod did. Jesus had been rejected. And within hours of Luke chapter 23, of the conversation taking place there, Jesus would die. 
Luke chapter 23, you can, you can look there. I'm not going to read through the whole thing. But in Luke chapter 23, what we have is Herod meeting Jesus and then immediately mocking him. He mocks him. He sees nothing he can do, so he sends him back to Pilate to be crucified. Herod mocked and ridiculed Jesus and sends him back to Pilate to be killed because Herod could care less about life. This interaction is similar to the Edomites' actions in Obadiah. It's interesting, though, that as Obadiah's prophecy is fulfilled in Christ, that, that Judah would be restored and that they would come back, and, and the life and the work of Jesus Christ is the pinnacle of Judah. It, it's a pinnacle of all the prophecies of the Old Testament brought together. Herod says, what does it profit me? Jesus said, what can I do that will be the greatest benefit to, to, to my brethren? God vindicates Jesus. Jesus went to the cross. He dies. He, 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 he dies a horrible, painful, agonizing death. But death isn't the end for him. Death is followed by a resurrection, and today he lives and he rules in heaven. In case you're wondering, Herod went on living his life of sin and indulgence. But not much longer after this, he's banished, he goes to France, and he dies in misery. In 70 AD, the Edomites would be destroyed forever by the Romans. 70 AD, there's, there's a revolt, and the Romans come in, and again, the temple is destroyed, and Jerusalem is, is overthrown, and all sorts of horrible things happen. But this time, the Edomites are completely wiped off the planet. They're removed from, from the globe. The very ones that Herod sent Jesus to are the ones that destroy the Edomites, Herod's people. And when we compare the two kings and, and, and the, the two nations, that, that's kind of the choice before you. You can go Herod's way. You, you can pursue the world. You can pursue the things of this world. You can pursue the things that the Edomites pursued. You can, you can live in pride and you can let that rule your life. Or you can go Jesus' way. You can live in humility. You can live in self-sacrifice. You can die to yourself. But let me tell you something. If you just drift, if you don't actively make this choice, you don't actively pursue the life of Christ, what I can tell you, if you pursue the, the path of least resistance, you will go the way of Herod. That, that's where you're going. Because if you just drift and you, you're, you're, you're not pursuing holiness and righteousness and obedience, what you're going to do is you're going to sin. And you'll pursue the things of this world. And you'll end up thinking yourself better than others and mistreating them and doing exactly what the Edomites were guilty of. If your life is to be different from, from that, and if you want your end to be different from the Edomites or from, from Herod's, then you must pursue Christ. You must confess him as Lord. You must confess your sins because you're guilty. Everyone's guilty. Pursue Christ's righteousness. That's what we need. Herod rejected it. The Edomites rejected it. But 
we don't. We acknowledge I'm a sinner. I've failed. I've rebelled against God. I'm in desperate need of a Savior. I'm in desperate need of mercy. I'm in desperate need of righteousness, and that righteousness has to come outside of me. It comes from Christ. And we repent, and we believe. And then we're His. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much for this morning and for the opportunity to worship you and to, to gather together and to study your word. God, we thank you that we, we thank you that you have not left us on our own. That you have not left us in our pride to, to pursue the things of this world, to live like the Edomites, to face the judgment of the Edomites. But God, you you have you have called us to repentance. You have sent us a savior to deal with the sins in our own hearts. And that Savior is Jesus Christ. And He is perfect, and His work was successful, and He defeated sin and the grave. God, we thank You that we know that we don't, we don't have to, to live like Herod or face the end that Herod or the Edomites did because we have Christ. God, I, I pray that, that if there's someone here who doesn't know you, doesn't, doesn't understand what it means to repent of sin or, or, or know what it means to, to cry out for Christ, God, I pray that you'd reveal yourself to them. Pray that you'd show them their own sins and who Jesus is. Father, we love you, we praise you, and we worship you. We pray these things in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.